Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and this is part of an ongoing series of episodes where we shine a spotlight on the Focus on Innovation series from the Addiction Policy Forum. Joining me today is Jessica Nickel, CEO and founder of the Addiction Policy Forum, the organization that created the Focus on Innovation series. So welcome, Jessica. Thanks for having me. Okay. The Focus on the Innovation series highlights programs across our country that contribute to a comprehensive strategy to combat addiction. A comprehensive strategy to addiction includes prevention, treatment, recovery supports, drug overdose reversal, law enforcement, and criminal justice. So again, Jessica, welcome. And tell us a little bit about this episode because I'm really excited to talk with Chris Hickey. Yeah, Um, I'm so um, delighted that you're able to spotlight um, this program that we highlighted in our Focus on Innovation Awards. Um, Chris started the Safe Stations program in New Hampshire and Manchester um, to really sort of address the uh, um, treatment capacity gap uh, and the need for um, better ways for individuals to access treatment in his hometown um, by opening up their fire stations as a a point of um, service and um, treatment access and hope for um, those in his community that uh, have a substance use disorder and are seeking help and recovery. Um, so we're delighted. We've uh, focused um, on this program in, in our weekly series, and we also uh, awarded Chris our Pillar of Excellence Award um, for 2017. Um, I, I love the work that they've done because it's one idea and one individual seeing something that needs to change and then doing something with that and making a real difference in his community. And this is a really personal story. So, Chris, we're delighted to uh, welcome you on the show. You're the architect of Safe Stations, a program in Manchester, New Hampshire. So, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Okay. So, tell us why Safe Stations was founded. Uh, It was actually a chance encounter uh, here at our fire station, here at the headquarters of Manchester Fire. Uh, We had a guy have a job who's stepbrother uh, struggled with heroin and was at the point of uh, being relatively suicidal and put some messages out on social media uh, and was encouraged to come talk to his stepbrother uh, before anything drastic took place. 
cards about a year prior to him coming in that had information on different local treatment centers, different local treatment organizations, phone numbers, websites. And we weren't seeing them scattered around, so we thought they were actually doing some help. And what ended up happening was we sat him down with these cards, and we sat down on the computer with them and started going through it and realized this really was not what we thought it was. It really wasn't much help. It really wasn't much use to really anybody besides using it as a bookmark. So what we did was I'd been doing some work with a local recovery center, doing some CPR classes for them, and I called them and I said, hey, I don't know what your intake policy is or how we go about doing this, but I got a guy here to explain the situation. And they said, oh, I'll just bring him right over. So we did, and that afternoon I was thinking about the situation and sent an email to my chiefs saying, you know, more or less explaining an unusual circumstance and how easy it was to do this. And literally the last line of my email was, wouldn't it be cool if we could do something for drug addicts similar to the Baby Take Aid program? And that was it, really. I mean, that email got forwarded to the mayor, and the mayor pulled me out of a meeting the next week and said, do you really think you could do this? I said, well, it's possible. I haven't really thought it would be something, you know, that would be seriously looked upon. And he said, well, how much time would you need? And I said, well, I'd have to get approval from the state, and this is, you know, not something that's typically in our job description or purview as firefighters and first responders. I don't know, probably about six months. He said, okay, you got three weeks. Whoa. Yeah. And anybody who knows the way big city politics work, that's pretty much par for the course. So it was actually, I sat down that afternoon and just started writing all these things that I've been thinking about, you know, since this situation occurred. And two weeks later, I had the proposal done and vetted and supported from several local recovery centers and treatment centers and had it approved by the state. And on May 4th, 2016, we unveiled the program to the public. It was a simple idea and it just kind of took off from there. So what kind of seed money did it take to get this program started? None. Awesome. It didn't take anything to get started. It's something that's, you know, here in New England and New Hampshire, especially in Manchester, we're not all that unaccustomed to having people walk up to the firehouse complaining of medical issues. You know, the area around Central Fire is businesses and, you know, three-decker houses and apartment buildings. So, you know, at times that means it's relatively lower income. So people would just walk to the firehouse and having chest pain or difficulty breathing or some sort of traumatic injury. And that's the way we looked to approach this was to treat this like any other call. But rather than transport them to the hospital, we would have one of the local recovery centers or treatment centers actually come and get them from us. You know, because a lot of times we would see that, you know, taking someone to the hospital really wasn't the right option for them. Why is that? They just end up walking out. Yeah. 
Um, you know, and one of the things we hear from, you know, people who are treating for overdoses and the families of them is, oh, you know, we call, you know, an XYZ recovery center and they put us on a wait list and, you know, we call ABC recovery center and, you know, we can't get in there for, for four months. And that just didn't seem like it was something that was really going to help the problem. So we said, well, if we can at least keep them local and have them come to us when they want help as opposed to when they're being forced into it, that, that might make a difference. So what are the eligibility requirements that one would have to have when they come to one of your stations? Uh, there really isn't any. Um, it could be really any age, um, any nationality, any background. Uh, you don't have to have insurance. Uh, you don't have to have a residence. You can be homeless. Uh, you can have other coexisting medical or mental conditions. Um, you know, if you struggle with uh, addiction and substance abuse, we have an open door and an open hand for you. Outstanding. So you hit on something a little bit earlier, and that's something that many communities are struggling with, and that is lack of beds, lack of resources. How did you deal with that in your community? How were you able to piece these together and provide them right then as your patients, as, as these people need it? Well, the way it kind of worked was, you know, that's one of the things, like you said, we hear all the time that there's, you know, lack of beds or lack of treatment or lack of funds. And what we did was uh, when I first started drafting this all together, I needed to get an idea of, you know, what the true on the boots numbers were, or on the boots on the ground numbers were for, you know, what was available locally. And once I started asking around and asking people that I already knew, it started opening doors to, oh, well, there's recovery here, there's treatment here, there's, you know, XYZ here, but a lot of what was lacking in it was, you know, the medical clearance part of it. Um, you know, they needed to have some sort of exam. Uh, and also the insurance aspect of it. Uh, people needed to have insurance. Well, what we were able to figure out was that the recovery center or the treatment center that we work with or that we partnered with for this program doesn't matter if you have insurance. There's not a lot they can bill for anyway when they're dealing with, you know, some type of intake process. But one of the things that they do is that when somebody comes in, they can actually set them up with uh, state-run health insurance and then tailor that insurance to ensure that if they need an inpatient program, that they'll have something. They'll have the right insurance to get them in there. Um, but we, one of the biggest hurdles we had was, you know, what are we going to do with these people overnight? Um, so what we did uh, was we partnered, we uh, formed a second partnership with uh, a sober living uh, organization that's faith-based. Uh, they owned a couple of buildings right around our fire station, uh, and we actually put in uh, a 32-bed uh, respite or, or social recovery center uh, so that when these people were in classes during the day or waiting to get into an inpatient program, they would have someplace safe and warm and sober to stay. Wow, that's brilliant. So, well, like I said, it's, the resources were there. It was just a matter of kind of wrangling them all together to, to all work in one cohesive manner, to, to use today's terminology to break down the walls and silos mm -hmm. and have everybody on the same page and working together. Okay. And so since that time, the program has 
expanded considerably since May 4th, 2016. In fact, you're coming up on your one-year anniversary, aren't you? Yeah, we are. I'm actually really excited to see what the, the one-year tolls are uh, because they'll have some good hard data to compare of a year with the program and a year without the program. Um, you know, at this point in time, we've had almost 1,500 people come through, uh, 1,500 visits come through. We've had them from, uh, let's see, at last count, uh, 121 different New Hampshire communities, which is over half the state. And uh, of those communities, all 10 counties in the state have uh, had residents come in. Uh, we've had um, nine different communities in Maine. We've had 22 different communities from Mass, and then we've had smatterings of people from all over the country, from as far south as Alabama, uh, as far west as Nevada and Oregon. And people come from everywhere because this is the only type of program like this, and we can get them into a, at least an outpatient program as soon as they walk in our door. Wow, that's powerful. So they walk in your door, take it from there. What do you do? Yeah, so they walk through our door, they they ring our doorbell. Um, you know, we have one thing about all of our stations is that they're, we're a career department, uh, so they're all manned 24 7. What we end up having is someone will come up and say, hey, you know, I'm looking to get into a safe station program or I'm, you know, I need some help with heroin or I need some help getting off whatever substance. Uh, so we'll bring them in. Uh, encourage any family that brought them or uh, loved ones that brought them in to come in and sit with them and, and go through the process too because you know the families need that reassurance that yes something is actually being done that this isn't a you know a front or a scam or whatever um what we do is we do a full physical assessment on them we take their vital signs uh, we look for any open wounds or abscesses from uh from iv drug abuse um we Ask them if they have any other, you know, coexisting conditions, whether it be medical or mental, and whether they're up to date on their medications for them. Um, we take those vital signs, we have an intake assessment form, and they sign it. And essentially, it's a, a waiver of liability that, you know, you're not being forced into this and you're not being held against your will. Um, and you're not going to sue us for whatever reason. Uh, and then we contact uh, Serenity Place, which is our, our treatment partner and they have a social worker or caseworker come over and introduce themselves to the patients and bring them back to their facility so I mean really when they come through our doors they're in an outpatient program so whether or not they choose to stay with that I mean it's really up to them sometimes people are really ready the first time they come through sometimes they're ready the tenth time they come through we we don't hold any grudges we don't uh, we don't discriminate uh, based upon how many times they've come through because we've all, over the last year, gained a pretty good understanding and much more knowledge of, of what it truly means to be suffering with addiction. So, do you have any statistics on how the program has performed? I know you're looking forward to the one-year anniversary and doing the look-back, but do you have anything else that you could share with our listeners in, in terms of the effectiveness of safe stations there, Chris? Yeah, so... Um, of the, you know, nearly 1,500 people that have come in, um, approximately 70% of them remain either in an inpatient or outpatient program. Um, you know, the other 30% stray or, or you know, 
have chose to chose to leave for whatever reason or another and there we always tell them they're always welcome back but the most the biggest stuff for us that's most important for for our community as a whole is that since we started we've seen a 26 percent reduction in overdoses compared to the same timeline in 2016 and a 50 percent reduction in overdose related deaths since 2016. Oh my 50 percent reduction. Yeah but I mean our biggest thing is that you know we're just one piece of the way our community is really starting to attack this. You know I raised the red flag when we had our first noticeable increase in overdoses in December of 2014. Like we've always had overdoses you know 20 or 30 a month was really the average but then in December we hit 73 and it never really slowed down I mean to the point where our highest was I think 102. Um, you know we had double digit deaths per month you know just in in our community not the entire state so it was hitting us pretty hard um, and we were able to identify gaps uh, in really every single aspect of how we were going about fighting this as a community um, so I started doing, you know, some shock and awe presentations uh, in schools and, you know, every single public high school and middle, middle school students saw my shock and awe presentations as kind of a, a throwback to, you know, the whole this is your brain and this is your brain on drugs uh, commercial that used to air in the 80s. Yeah. And uh, the school department from there took upon themselves to continue that type of education using their own means, but uh, continuing to, you know, spur the drug education aspect in schools to reduce the future user base. And the police department has a program up here called Operation Grand Hammer. Um, and what that does is that targets the mid-level dealers to be able to try and stem the flow of drug into the city. But as you know as well as I do, that as soon as you take one dealer off the street, two more pop up. So that's, that's a big challenge. But you know, so we're trying to attack the education side, the law enforcement side, and the treatment side as one cohesive unit, as a you know complete community effort. So you mentioned the gaps that you found and how your community was addressing it. I'm sure many other communities across the country experience probably the same gaps. What other gaps can you share with us that you discovered and you've addressed? Well, some of the biggest things that that were that were noticed but not really um, not really talked about much was uh, the, the drying up of the funding that was available for substance abuse and mental health services. You know, that traditionally for the last decade or so that always had seemed to be one of the first things that was either reduced or cut out of budgets. So as soon as that got reduced and cut out of budgets, that had a wide-ranging effect because it ended up closing down uh, treatment centers that were state funded or staffing so they had to have uh, reduced intake or reduced volume. You know, we ended up with uh, identifying some gaps as far as uh, uh, the services that were available for youth both in school and out of school. Yeah. Um, you know, we identified the ones that I already mentioned which were you know the wait times getting into treatment and the communication uh, between services and hospitals. Hmm. So a lot of that has been worked on and a lot of that is in the process of being corrected. The 
one thing you can't really fix right off the bat is the funding issue. Sure. Uh, but I know the Addiction Policy Forum has made great strides with uh, the Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act, and that ought to at least uh, put some communities in a better place to be able to attack this. Yeah, I was going to interject. I know someone that can be a big help with that sitting across yeah, the table here. Someone too. She may even be in the room there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Jessica? I, I, I agree that we need to protect funding in each of the six pillars. Um, shoring, yeah. shoring up funding for treatment, but forgetting about recovery support or prevention or the law enforcement and criminal justice uh, resources. Um, we can't rob Peter to pay Paul in, um, in how we address addiction and substance use disorders. Uh, so we are tracking 34 separate federal funding programs um, across those six pillars and ensuring that we hold the line, if not increase those dollars um, in for this year, for 2017, and then already looking towards 2018. We saw an, an increase of um, about $540 million. Um, in dollars that came out in December out of Congress. Um, so there, we're starting to um, make up for those cuts. And Chris is right. We've seen um, major cuts to prevention services over the last 10 years. All of our school-based programs were completely zeroed out, safe and drug-free schools. We've seen cuts to the substance abuse and mental health block grant that goes out to all 50 states. And treatment is about 50% funded by states directly and 50% through block grant funding. So um, any cuts and, and sort of loss of resources on, on that block grant um, has far-reaching impact in our communities and our states. Uh, so we're working hard to make sure that voices come together um, across that whole comprehensive continuum uh, to make sure that we are, are funding this and, and paying attention and tending to every single program that is part of the solution. And communities can call upon you as a resource and a guide for funding and how to get funded. Absolutely. Right? You can uh, sign up on, at addictionpolicy.org and we send out uh, funding updates on programs and uh, grants that are available, um, how to advocate for these programs um, and, and educate yourself and stay up to date. Um, we put that information out with you. So back to safe stations. Um, I guess down at the individual, you know, firefighter, say, uh, individual person's level who's responding to uh, the epidemic there, it's got to be awfully rewarding when you, you, before you felt helpless, kind of responding to the same thing over and over again. Now you're actually able to get people into treatment. That's got to just change your culture, doesn't it? It does. And, you know, one of, one of the things we struggled with for, you know, a good year, year and a half was uh, the mental aspect and, and the mental drain on us as first responders from the fire side, the police side, and, and the EMS side because, you know, we were sitting there watching families just get absolutely ripped apart and destroyed by this, you know, whether they knew there was a problem and chose to ignore it or whether they were oblivious to the fact that their loved one had a problem until it was too late. You know, we were sitting there doing CPR routinely on people our age or our children's age, um, you know, and, and just watching these families just absolutely disintegrate. Um, so it was starting to become something that was, like I said, a, just a, a, not just a physical strain, but really a, a mentally challenging thing to prepare to do every day because you knew it was coming. Um, and as firefighters, you know, we're used to seeing a problem 
almost mentally because we realized early on when we started to get just you know dozens and dozens of people coming in every month that people were coming to us before they were running into an issue. You know, they were choosing to go to the firehouse that they've always been taught since they were kids that if there was a problem, you go to the fire station. You know, everybody always wanted to be a firefighter when they grew up. You know, you always had the tours of fire trucks and firefighters were always in your school, so it was a very familiar and comforting face. And they, people never shied away. You know, there have been other programs similar to this that are run by police stations that, you know, for as much success as they've had, don't have the numbers, and that's unfortunately not a fault of their own. That's that's a stigma-related thing. You know, people are still afraid that they go and they talk to a police officer that they're going to be, you know, automatically in trouble for it. Absolutely. If you have someone that, you know, comes into a fire station that they've never been in, um, you know, Jessica can tell you, you talk to uh, someone my size who's, you know, six foot two, 275 pounds, about the worst problem you've ever had, chances are you're probably ready for some help. Like I said, that's not, it's not for everyone. Um, and we, I said, we welcome you all, whether it's the first time or the 10th time. So there's a lot of communities out there across the country that would like to emulate what you've achieved here, Chris. Yep. So if you were to put out some advice to them on how to get started, what would you tell them? Well, I think the biggest, the biggest first step is to get the powers that be in your community related to this issue together. I mean, it's not just one simple idea. It's not one person that's going to be able to solve this. It, it truly takes an entire city or the entire town. Um, it's an entire community from top to bottom, from elected officials to you know, uh, religious organizations. So you get everybody together and you just hatch out, okay, what could everybody do or contribute to this? You know, Safe Station has been replicated in a couple of departments uh, up here in New England already. And it's gone from more being a hard plan to a concept. You want to be able to welcome these people in, show them that you have the compassion and you want to help not only on the front end of, you know, reviving them from an overdose, but you want to be able to help on the back end with guiding them into the treatment programs and processes that are available. But you're going to run into challenges, and those challenges, the biggest one that's lacking across the country, um, like I said, we happen to develop a solution for it locally for us, but it's that, that, that respite aspect. And that respite aspect of once you get these people into your hands and into your station or into your program, what are you going to do when your doors close for the night? Are you going to let them back out on the street? Or you want them to have some place to go that they can continue to, to work on their process. And that's, like I said, that's going to be the biggest challenge in any community across the country. Wow. This has been so enlightening. I want to thank you for joining us today, Chris. The tremendous. I think it's my pleasure. I want to thank you for the opportunity to speak about it. Okay. I think a lot of communities across the country will benefit from your comments here and your insights. So... Thank you, and thank you, Jessica. Absolutely. We've been joined today by Chris Hickey, who is the architect of Safe Stations. Safe Stations has transformed Manchester's 10 fire stations into intake centers where individuals struggling with addiction can go for help without fear of being arrested. 
The program, which helped 100 people within a month of debuting back on May 4, 2016, has now welcomed over 1,500 clients uh, as of the beginning of 2017. So again, our congratulations, Chris, and thanks again. All right, thank you very much. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm joined today with Jessica Nickel. Jessica is the CEO and founder of Addiction Policy Forum. And we'd like to thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.